Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. I want to talk to you about the beauty of the Bible. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can turn Christianity back into a religion when it was always meant to be so much more. If we're not careful, sometimes we can turn a relationship with Jesus into something uh, like, a, like a method when it, when it was meant to be something so much more. And I, I don't know what it is, but lately I've just been reading the Bible through it with a new perspective, with a new lens. And, and I think maybe it's attached to Easter as we're preparing for our incredible Easter service that we're going to have here and all over the world at the same time. I've, I've been reading the Bible through a visual lens, trying to see how can we take this and, and, and portray it for the world in a real way. How do we go to the places that it happened in Israel and, and broadcast it all over the world? And our, our mission statement at Awakening Church is to show Jesus to the world. That's what we believe our calling is. That's what our goal is. That's what everything forms around. But it, it hit me that how can you show Jesus to the world if you've never really seen him for yourself? If you've never encountered him, if you've never experienced him, if you don't know him, and, and, and yes, it's absolutely a journey. But there's got to be some moments in your life that change your perspective on Jesus, you know, on, on religion and on, on Christianity. And, and I hope that you've had those moments. And if you haven't, I would say stay in it because God doesn't let you follow him without encountering him for a long period of time. And if you feel like you're in a desert for a, a long time, I'm going to pray that you would encounter Jesus brand new, that an oasis of, of freshness, of spirituality comes into your life again, that the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you again, that freshness begins to come over you again. Because the Bible is so beautiful, it's so real, it's so unique, it's so God-like and human at the same time, and, and that's who Jesus was. And I hope that you can meet, can experience that Jesus. And so today, you know, I, I just want to speak to you from that perspective. Maybe you're here and you say, I don't even believe in the Bible, I don't believe all the things in the Bible. Well, just from a literature perspective, just, just listen to me, because I want to tell you some stories. And I believe by the end, you're going to see that the Bible is so divinely inspired, it's shown all the way through, that no mere human could write these words. It's above anything ever written. I've read the Iliad. I've read the Odyssey. I've read the, the Greek myths. I, I, I've read it all. And it, and it falls so short of the incredible words of the Bible Many times people will argue about the Bible and say, well, I don't believe this or that. And it's like, I always ask them, have you read the Bible? It's amazing how many times the answer is no. And it's like, well, you, you just watched the Discovery Channel program where Morgan Freeman was God. That's not the Bible. You know, or you, you, you've read somebody's blog. When you begin to read the words, the Bible says that the word itself is alive, that it's sharp that it begins to cut between the spirit and the soul, the bone and the marrow. In other words, it goes deeper than anything else. It begins to separate truth, and, and it begins to separate truth from the lie, and, and, and it begins to separate the law from grace, and it just goes into areas where sometimes you won't even admit to yourself, never mind anyone else, but the word will get right in there because it's, it's real. It's real. Jesus was the word made flesh, the Bible says. In other words, the word put on human skin, lived, breathed, came among us. He was the personification of the word. And what he did was just so amazing. And so today, I just want to tell you some of these stories throughout the word of God. But I want to read two verses to set this up. If you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, 
I'm going to read two verses here and then one in 2 Timothy. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest, speaking about Jesus, he's our high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. One translation says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but he has faced everything that we've faced and yet conquered without sin. He's gone through every adversity, every trial. If you've experienced an emotion, Jesus has experienced the height and the depth of it. And it makes him so real that he doesn't sit up distant. And I know maybe some of the films that we've seen, it's almost like as if Jesus is floating on the screen. And it's as if everyone knows he was the son of God. But the reality is many people missed it. He was so human. He was so real. The Bible almost says he has such a, he has a personification that even if you saw him, you almost wouldn't, you wouldn't even recognize him as anything other than just a man. It's just that normal. And yet within him is something so incredible. The verse goes on. So knowing that he's faced everything we face and yet conquered without sin, let us then approach the God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because he gained victory and he gives it to us, which allows us to approach God's throne. We should be nowhere, nowhere near his throne. But, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, not only should you approach the throne, understand it's a throne of grace and not one of judgment. And you should approach it with confidence, boldly approach the throne of grace so that why we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. How many people need mercy and grace right now? Bible says, go boldly. You know what I love about that? It says in your time of need, because we can agree with the concept of mercy and grace when we're doing good. We read our Bible. We haven't sinned in a couple days. We're doing all right. That's when it's like, I know, I, I agree with the God of mercy and grace. No, but it's when you're in need. You screwed up. You're caught in a situation that's of your own doing. You're in the middle of something you don't know how to get out of. You, you, you need an actual miracle. And that's when the Bible says you got a need. That's when you should go to church. You know, the number one time you should go to church is when you don't want to. And when you don't feel like it. That's when you say, let's go and let's go boldly. In other words, I'm going 80 miles an hour to church. <laughs> I've got one more verse I want to read to you. In 2 Timothy verse, three, I'm, uh, verse 16, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to read the very first part. It says this, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. When you begin to read the word of God, you get his breath on you. When you begin to read the word of God, you get his freshness on you. Breath is the, the origin of life. When, when, when you begin to read the scripture, all of a sudden life begins to well up on the inside of you again. All of a sudden things begin to change. You know, the Bible says that, that uh, who, can, who can live with a sick soul? A, a, a sick soul eventually begins to dry up the bones. I don't know if you've ever seen some people, you, you look at them and you just look, they look cranky. They just look like they're death warmed over. Many times... It, their outward personification is exemplifying their inward state. Their soul is sick. Their soul is dry. Their bones are dry. And it's almost like they walk through life in sickness and in dryness. But the Bible says, come to the one that breathes brand new life. All scripture is God breathed. Get his breath in you. 
Get his vitality in you. Get his life in you. I'm telling you, some of you that have been saved for a couple years should go back and look at that driver's license that you have before you got saved. You look different than you did before because you got a new spirit on the inside of you. You get a spirit of life. You get a spirit of joy. You get a spirit of peace. I'm not saying you have, you have a perfect life. What I'm saying is the spirit on you as you walk through life begins to not be one of negativity, not one of anxiety, not one of depression, not one of doubt, not one of overwhelm, not one of darkness, not one of sickness. You get a new spirit on you. The spirit of God is love. The spirit of God is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm having some new fruit come out of my life. It's coming from the inside out as I read the Word of God. And so today, I just I want to tell you some, some stories about the Bible that just really inspire me and, and the imagery that's so amazing, so alive. It, it just, it's inspirational. And and so, God, I just pray as I speak, God, we just open our minds and we open our hearts that, that we might see the Bible in a brand new way. Amen. Amen. You know, I, I've been looking at this from a lens of, of presentation, and, and as I'm reading it, I'm just realizing the Bible is it's not written by normal people. It, this had to be God. When you look at it, you say, this had to be God-inspired, because no mere fisherman and tax collectors wrote something like this. These guys didn't go to school. Never mind Oxford. Never mind Yale. They didn't go to, like, public school. (laughs) Do you know that they were the ones that were passed over by the other rabbis? That's why they became fishermen. They they memorized the Torah. They were in the synagogue, and the rabbis called, uh, you, 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 and Peter, James, and John, you guys can go home. You don't need to come back next Monday. And they went on, they became fishermen. And that's when Jesus shows up and he says, Peter, James, and John, follow me. Become my disciples. Jesus chose the one that every other rabbi had passed over. In a little tiny place, in the absolute middle of nowhere, these nobodies, Jesus shows up and he chooses them. I just want you to know, you might feel like you have no pedigree, you've got no background, you don't have the right words, You couldn't possibly represent God as he deserves to be represented. you got to understand, God chooses whom he chooses based on himself. He chooses the people that actually don't feel like they're good enough, that feel like they're not prepared. He goes to the people that are from the wrong families, were passed over, and don't have anything to bring. And God says, watch what I'm going to do with you jokers. I'm going to turn you in to something you could never be on your own. And he gets all the glory because everyone knows you. And it ain't you. And, and we see this story being written by these fishermen, these normal people. We see the lives that they, they live, even to the point where they die for these stories. 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred. They were killed because they wouldn't give up the faith. If this was a hoax, number one, it's the most amazing hoax of all time. It's geographically correct. It's historically accurate. It's the greatest, if it's fiction, it's the greatest historical fiction anyone has ever written. It's so amazing, it's still worthy of your study and your time and your effort and your life, at least to me. If it's just literature, it's still worthy of me dedicating my life to it as literature. It's amazing what they wrote. And then they died for it. All the way through, they wouldn't deny it. They wouldn't deny it. Talk about about an amazing group. 
that says, I'm not, I'm not going to change my story even if I'm in jail. I'm not going to rat out my friends. I mean, you get the mafia, you put that guy behind jail. He's saying it was little Anthony, it was big Anthony, it was Marie, it was the other Marie. They're ratting left and right. But these disciples are saying, no, I'm, I'm not changing my story because it's true, even though it's unbelievable. You know, the Bible is one of the most inspirational um, collections of liter- literature. I would say the most inspirational collection of literature to ever be produced. The Bible has inspired architects. The Bible has inspired uh, artists. It's inspired filmmakers and, and composers. The greatest works you've ever heard from some of the greatest composers are dedicated to the glory of God. The greatest buildings, some of the greatest unbelievable pieces of architecture are churches. You go to New York City, and where do you go? You go to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's dedicated to the glory of God. It, when, when you begin to see these incredible works of art, my wife and I re- recently went to the Met in New York City, and, and you, they have art from all, all different ages and all different cultures, and it's amazing how much of it was inspired by Jesus was inspired by the word. And as you go through all of these different cultures and all of these different countries and you look at these incredible works of art put on display for millions to come and see, you say, that's a statue of David. That's a statue of Mary and Jesus. That's a recreation of a church. It's all inspired by the word of God. What are these artists seeing when they read these words? What are these composers hearing when they read these words? What are the architects envisioning when, these, when they read these words? Other authors, they'll write their, their, their books and, and they will use biblical imagery and biblical language. Why? Because there's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more powerful than the Bible. Poets will write their, their, their po- poems and where's their inspiration? It's in the Psalms. You, you, you hear, you hear uh, phrases of wisdom that, that mankind will come up with and they'll post on Pinterest, but they're nothing compared to the Proverbs. Some of the greatest wisdom ever passed down to us. I, I, I think the Bible, it's so incredible that if you actually read it, you come away without there being any other option that this was inspired by God. This was not written by a mere person. Do you know that, that there's conspiracy theories, and, and they're not even conspiracy theories, that many, many people, including Mark Twain, all throughout history backed up that uh, Shakespeare wasn't one person but a collection of people because they looked at his body of evidence, at his work, and they said no one man could ever write all of these plays. It had to be a, a multitude of people that wrote this together because such genius couldn't reside in just one person. But Shakespeare, with all his 37 plays, don't, doesn't even come close to the original creation of the Bible, the imagery and the language and, 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 and what's inside of here. It's amazing. I say all this to say, have you read it like that? Have you seen that? Because sometimes you'll read just because, you know, you're bored or, you know, you're trying to get through the daily Bible reading and you're trying to, you know, be structured. And I think all of that's good. But, but sometimes we read it like it's <clears throat> like it's just a collection of rules and, and missing that. Like that, that's the law. When Jesus showed up, he was, he was the word made flesh. He was so human. He was the personification of everything that came before him and all that would come. And, and, and when you begin to see who he was and what he did, you realize, man, he's beautiful. And everything he did was beautiful. And he really did bring beauty from ashes. The world was in ashes, but Jesus arrived and he made it beautiful. He'll do that with your life. He'll do that with your story. It gives me hope when I read it because I see such beauty. I say, could God do this with my life? And and I guess my question would be, 
you see what these artists and these poets and, and these architects have seen in the Bible. And I would encourage you to read it with fresh eyes because the Bible has imagery that's just inspired. Like, like think about this. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the last few hours of Jesus's life. Jesus is, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is, he's overwhelmed knowing that this is his last night on planet earth uh, in this form. And, and what he's going to have to go through is going to be horrific. And he knows this. He's God. He knows all things. And he invites some of his disciples to come and pray with him in the garden of Gethsemane, which means agony. And, and, and the Bible says that as he's praying, he's so overwhelmed. He's so filled with anxiety. He's so nervous about this. It's such a real weight. And you think, well, well, he knows the end. Yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't negate the reality that in the present, this is a very difficult thing. And the worst of all was that he knew that God was going to be separate from him for a time. And the Bible says he was so overwhelmed, filled with exhaustion, that he begins to sweat blood great drops of blood. And you know, science has even proven that when you push man to its extreme, that the body literally begins to sweat blood. It's a medical condition. And he's under this weight and, and he comes back to find his disciples. Three and a half years he's been with them. He's poured everything out for them. And he said, will you just pray with me? And he comes back and they're asleep. He's filled with exhaustion. He's, he's bleeding from his pores. And these guys are taking a nap. And you know what's amazing is we all think like, well, if I was there, <laughs> if I was there, I would have prayed with Jesus. You would have been asleep too. You're asleep right now. I'm looking right at you. But he says, will you just pray with me one more hour? Comes back, they're asleep again. Will you pray with me just one more hour? He comes back, they're asleep again. And you just see this picture of, of Jesus about to take the weight of the world on himself and his disciples can't even pray for him during the time. And, and you want to talk about loneliness? This is, the this is the most incredible picture of loneliness I've ever seen. And so if you ever feel like you're alone, you have a God that can empathize with that. Where in his darkest moments, even his best friends couldn't stand with him. And I, and I can't judge them because that's humanity. The reality is that all of humanity was asleep. Only Jesus could have done this. Our church is called Awakening, but it's not because of us. Come on, we say it like, come on, I'm coming after you. You didn't go after him. You were asleep. In the most important moment, you were sleeping through it. People say, well, I just came down to the altar. I think he brought you down to the altar. I remember when I decided to follow him. I think he chased after you. Say, I'm coming after him. Now he's coming after you. You and me, we were asleep. It was Jesus that endured the agony, endured the loneliness, endured the weight so that we might one day be awakened. Thank you, God. It was all you, all the way through, 100%. How could we ever, after we've been awakened by God, now say, now I'm going to earn it? Come on, you were asleep when he was enduring. Now you just got to come from a place of thankfulness saying, I could never earn it because in the most important moment, I wasn't even cognizant. I wasn't even aware. And even if I knew of my sin, the Bible says all have fallen short. I couldn't have gotten out of my sin. It took Jesus to do something incredible. And then the Bible says that, that as the story goes, his one disciple that wasn't there, Judas, 
was actually gathering with the captain of the guard and, and the law, the religious leaders. And they came in the middle of the night with swords and clubs and spears and, and, and uh, uh, torches. They came in the middle of the night up into that garden to find Jesus. And when they come, Jesus says, why are you coming to arrest me like I'm some sort of criminal? What have I ever done that makes you think you need swords and clubs in the army to come arrest me? All he ever did was heal people. All he ever did was preach love and grace. All he ever did was bring kindness, and yet the world hated him. And they came at him like he was a criminal. Jesus says, you're blessed if you're persecuted for my name's sake. If they understood me and they listened to me, they would listen to you. But they didn't. They hunted me down even when I was just telling the truth. You know what I think is so amazing is they were afraid of Jesus. They came with all those clubs and everything because they were afraid of what Jesus really could do. We look at Gandhi and we look at MLK as examples of peaceful resistance. And they absolutely were. And we see the power of their peaceful resistance, but they weren't the source of it. They both point back to Jesus as the originator of peaceful resistance and the power And the power that was there. Bible says when they said, are you Jesus? He says, I am. The Bible says they fell back. Just at the power of his words made people stumble backwards. It's amazing. The one that created the world, his words are that powerful to force men backwards. The Bible says that Judas, he walked up to Jesus and he was identifying him for those with the swords and the clubs and the spears. And how did he betray him? Judas, the one that had been with him for three and a half years, he betrayed him with a kiss. Think of that imagery. He betrayed him with a kiss. We see intimacy and rejection in the same action. You look at that imagery, betrayal with a kiss. Find that in art outside of the Bible. Find that in written collections outside of the Bible. We, we, you know, I don't know if you know Shakespeare, but, but uh, when Brutus killed Caesar, Shakespeare wrote, et tu, Brute, you too, Brutus. And it's like this moment where his close friend stabbed him in the back with a knife, and, and Caesar is, is to have said by Shakespeare, even you, you too, Brutus. But that's nothing compared to Judas kissing him for a betrayal. That his friend would come up and greet him with a kiss, but in the same moment, identify him for death for others. You know what what strikes me as pretty amazing from this moment is that a person, mankind, could ever kiss the face of God. That Jesus, that God would ever put him in position for us to ever get that close again. You remember the Garden of Eden, we were barred from it, but now we're in another garden walking again with Jesus. You would say, man, I just wish I could be in the Garden of Eden walking with God. Humanity had its chance again in another garden to walk with God. And what humanity chose again was betrayal. And betrayal with a kiss. That much more personal, deeply agonizing. And, and when he kissed them, it was, it was just like a picture. It was a picture of of God allowing mankind to get that close and, God, and, and mankind still chose to use God for self-gain. When he kissed him, he identified him as this is the one for you to take and give me my money. Because he sold him out. 
He sold Jesus out, the Bible says, for 30 pieces of silver. Just nothing. It was, it was about six weeks' work. It was nothing. The creator of the universe sold into slavery by mankind for nothing. You know, the Bible says that, that the price, in, in the Bible, the price at that time of a slave that accidentally was killed was 30 pieces of silver. In other words, what was happening was Jesus saying, I'll become a slave so that I can set you free and call you a son or a daughter. It's a beautiful exchange. It's an incredible exchange. And just so you know, before you judge Judas too harshly, Judas could do nothing unless God allowed it. And even at the Last Supper, God says to Judas, Jesus says to Judas, now go do what you've been set in your heart to do. In other words, Jesus gave Judas permission to betray him. That's how powerful he is. And the story goes on that Judas realizes what he's done, that he sold out his friend, his master, his teacher. He sold out, the Bible says, he realized it's the son of God. After they arrested him, after they put him on trial and falsely accused him, Judas comes to himself and realizes, I can't believe that I've exchanged him for nothing. And he comes back to the Pharisees and he says, I want to change it back. Take my money back and just release Jesus. He's done absolutely nothing wrong. And you know what? The story goes that the Pharisees said, we don't want your money. They acted as if they don't even know him at this point. Who are you? We don't know you. We don't want you. Who do you think you are? You know what's amazing about this? That's always how the enemy reacts to you after you've bought in to what he's selling. Always how he reacts. It's the same spirit. It's like the enemy always overpromises. Always. And then he always underdelivers. Always. And after you buy in and you realize I've made a huge mistake. I've done an incredibly stupid thing with my life. When you go back to the enemy and say, let's put it back just as it was before, the enemy says, too late. You made your choice. You have to live with your choice. That money is blood money, and it's on your hands. And that's where Judas had to live with, and he couldn't hold that money any longer. The money that he so desperately desired to have, the Bible says he took it, and he threw the money into the temple. Man, what a picture. The, the coins all over the floor of the temple. The temple was meant to set people free. The temple was meant to provide forgiveness, but what it had turned into is a house for money changers. That's why when Jesus came in, he turned over the tables of the temple and the money went everywhere. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you've turned it into a temple where you're stealing from people. And here... Here, Judas takes the money and throws it because that's what the temple had really turned into. All about power, greed, and money. So much so that when the Son of God shows up, the religious leaders not only don't even know it's him, not only miss it, they actively work to persecute him because they have some money in the temple. The ironic thing, it was no money at all. 30 pieces of silver, it was no money at all. I don't know about you, but for me, I don't ever want 
my life. I don't want my actions to betray Jesus so I can have just a little bit of money for myself. Robert Morris preached about the tithe, 10%. That's what the tithe means. 10%? I'll give 90%. I'd give 100%. I'll give whatever God asks. I'll give whatever he puts on my heart because I never want to save just a little bit for myself and end up betraying all that God did for me. All that I have is his. I never, ever want my actions or my words to use Jesus for self-gain. I'll always end up on the short end of the stick. You know what's amazing? Jesus talked about this. Jesus said, eventually you're going to have to choose. You can't serve both God and money. Eventually you're going to come to the place where you have to make a choice. And Judas was there when Jesus spoke those words. Judas heard it. Judas was there when Jesus walked on water. Judas was there when he performed the miracles. He was there when he raised Lazarus from the tomb. And the, he was there when the woman poured the expensive oil on Jesus' feet. And what was Judas's reaction? Look at all the money you just wasted on Jesus. He says, you could have given it to the poor as if that was actually his heart. It was all about money the whole way through. And he eventually did what Jesus said. We're all going to have to do at some point. It's choose between God and money. He chose money, and he so deeply regretted it. He threw it down, said, I want no part of this. And the Bible says that they didn't reject his offering because it was blood money of, the in, of innocent blood. It was, it was blood money that he cast down. And then the, the story goes on that Judas, feeling so overwhelmed with guilt and shame of what he did, that he betrayed his friend and he betrayed the Son of God, that he finds a tree in an empty field, and he hangs himself from that tree. He, ha he does this as penance, saying what I've done is irredeemable. What I've done is irrevocable. I will never, ever be able to pay that money back. And so I've got I've to take my own life because I deserve this. And as the same moment that he was hanging from a tree, Jesus, across the city, was also hanging from a tree. And he was hanging from this tree so that Judas didn't have to hang from that tree. Judas gave his life as the same, at the same time as Jesus was giving his life so that Judas, you and I, could have life. And I know we judge Judas all the time, but any of us could be it. In fact, Judas isn't the only person that betrayed Jesus that night. Peter betrayed him three times. And the final time, to his face, they locked eyes. And you, you sense the betrayal of Jesus when that happened with Peter. And yet, we call him Saint Peter. He's the apostle Peter. On you, I will build my church. In other words, even in the midst of the worst situation and the worst moment and incredible denial, God still will restore. He'll still forgive. He'll still die for your sins. I just think, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever seen that image, you know, but you don't have to kill yourself. You don't have to pay the penance. You don't have to say, well, I just, you know what? This is, this is what I get. Or maybe you would never physically hang yourself. Maybe, maybe the spirit of suicide isn't, isn't, isn't yet on you, but maybe it is. 
But maybe it's a spirit of depression, which is, the, which is the step behind that spirit. Maybe it's a spirit of anxiety, which is the initial step to these sequence of spirits. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a spirit of condemnation that you allow on yourself and say, I deserve this pain. I deserve this agony because of what I've done. And what Jesus came to do is say pain, agony, and shame off you. Off you. You don't have to live under that. You don't have to pay that price. You don't have to die because I already did it. The reality is every single one of us has betrayed Christ through our actions, through our words at some point in our life, and Jesus died for us all the same. Judas, Peter, and, and you. And, and, and you see Jesus on the cross. Just think of the picture of it. He's not alone on that cross. Here, here Judas is alone on that tree, but not Jesus. Jesus is being crucified, the Bible says, between two criminals. Because it's almost as if God had to paint the picture for us that he died for these kind of people. Otherwise, you might think that cross is alone. It's solitary. You ever see the painting of just one cross on a hill? There were three. And two of them were normal, everyday, modern criminals, just like you and like me. And the amazing thing about this moment is that one criminal rejects him in the moment, but the other criminal receives him in the moment. In other words, you have a choice. You are one of the criminals, but what is your reaction to the cross going to be? Are you going to choose to receive Christ or are you going to choose to reject Christ? And the one that receives him, Jesus says, listen, today you're going to be with me in paradise. You say, hold on. He hasn't been baptized yet. He hasn't done any good works yet. He hasn't even tended crew yet. Wait a minute. Back it up, Jesus. He's got to go through some stuff first. He's got to prove himself. Jesus is saying, this is how great my grace is. It's enough for today and for forever. For him and for us. So you might feel like, man, I'm, I'm a criminal when it comes to Jesus. That's all right. There's room in paradise for you. Then the Bible says that in this incredible moment where Jesus is dying on the cross for all mankind, for everyone there and everyone into eternity, those living and those yet to live, in this, this catastrophic, momentous moment that literally split history in two, that birthed the greatest revolution mankind's ever seen. In this eternal moment, Jesus looks down and he sees his mother at the foot of the cross. And he sees his best friend, John. And he says to John, John, receive your mother. In other words, as he's doing this eternal work for all mankind, he's also worried about his mom. And I, I, I don't know if you see it like I see it, but and that's the most human thing. I've ever seen it. it humanizes the cross that as Jesus is dying for everyone, he's also taking care of the one that's his family. It's like, even though Jesus was God, he was still like a little boy with a mom. And he knew I'm going to be gone. But even these next three days of mourning, will you take care of my mom? He's so personal. He's so filled with love. He'll save everyone, but he will save you so individually that he takes care of his mom because he knows she can't bear to see him on this cross. And he brings a friend into the family. 
It's like, that's our God. He's that personal. He's that caring. He's that individual with his love. It's stunning. And then the Bible says they took him down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. And you know what's so cool about this tomb? The Bible says it was in the midst of a garden. It's just beautiful imagery that there's death in the midst of life. And you know, every major thing in, in history has really happened in gardens. When God made the world, the Bible says that he planted a garden called Eden and he put Adam and Eve in it. The whole world wasn't the Garden of Eden, but there was a specific place made by God so that he could have relationship with his creation, his people. It was the Garden of Eden. And what was so amazing about this is he was friends with them. He'd talk with them. He'd walk with them. He'd live with them until they rejected God. And at that moment, the moment of rejection, God began his process of restoration, saying, I'm going to have to kick you out of this this place of rest, this place of paradise, this place of friendship for now, but I'm going to begin a sequence of events that one day we'll walk in this garden again. And so, yeah, we were removed from Eden, but then God sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus went into the garden called Gethsemane, which means agony. Means, it means pain. It's crushing. Gethsemane is, a, is an olive tree garden that all throughout the garden, there are these these rock basins and these rock wheels and what you would do is you'd put the olives in this in these rocks and you'd walk around and the wheel would crush the olives between the rock and there's a a little there's a little funnel that the oil would drip out of so you would you would crush the olives but you would get the oil and it's a picture of Jesus bruised for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities the punishment of our sin was laid on his shoulders but of his government there will be no end in other words his blood began to run from his body and it got on us his blood of forgiveness his blood of anointing his blood of restoration his blood of victory got on us he had to go through the agony in the garden so that we wouldn't have to live in the garden of agony And then his body is put in a new garden. And it's the garden of resurrection life. And there's a tomb in that garden, but here's the beautiful thing, is the tomb is empty. Is there any more beautiful picture in all the world than an empty tomb? And the Bible says that even those who are dead in Christ will rise first. I hope you remember this on your darkest day, when you have to put your sibling to rest that died too early, or your mother or your father. And when you see that coffin going into the ground and the dirt going over it, it looks sealed and it looks over. But if they are in Christ, that tomb will open again. That body will revive again. It will be caught up in heaven with Christ again. In other words, his empty tomb makes all of our tombs empty one day. His death brings life out of us one day. So, of course, the tomb had to be surrounded by a garden because the whole point was new life. beautiful picture. The Bible says Mary was in the garden. She heard a voice. The Bible says she thought the voice was the gardener and turns around, but it was Jesus. The reality is it was the gardener. He made Eden. He suffered in Gethsemane. 
He resurrected in that garden tomb. But the Bible says in the end times, when he returns, he's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives and everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And he's going to walk into Jerusalem and he's going to restore the city. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and new Jerusalem. But here's the best part. There's going to be a new garden. He's going to plant the Garden of Eden. Restoration, friendship, presence. And though life feels like Gethsemane, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. You're going to have an eternity of rest with Jesus. It was all his plan. All the way through. All along. And that empty tomb is our hope. That empty tomb, it's a picture of victory. It's a picture of hope. It's a picture that no matter what it looks like in the moment, it's not over. It might be day one, it might be day two, but day three is coming. He has conquered sin, shame, death, and the grave. And that empty tomb means there's new life for us. There's victory for us. So I wonder when you read the Word of God, when you read the Bible, do you see these beautiful images? And might I even ask, do you see them in your own life? Because he's still the author, and he's still writing. And one day when you get into heaven, you're going to be able to read your chapter in his book. And you're going to see it fits right along with all of these incredible stories. When Peter, who betrayed Jesus, was by the Sea of Galilee, after Jesus resurrected, he denied Jesus three times, but, Peter, but Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. He denied him three times, but God restored him three times. He's here to restore you completely and fully, 100%, as if it never happened. More than that, he says, you are anointed to feed my sheep. What does that mean? It means you can follow Jesus. You're vindicated before God. You can feel his grace and his mercy and his love, and you can work in the church. You can, you can, you can let your life be a ministry, I guess is what I'm trying to say. He doesn't just save you, but say, be quiet and don't forget what you did. He saves you and says, now act as if it never happened before. What images has God given you that are real and alive? Some of you have empty pill bottles that used to be filled, but God rescued you from it. Some of you have crutches that you never thought you'd be able to get off, wheelchairs they said you'd never be out of. Some of you have old IV bags that used to be filled with chemo, but God brought you through it. Some of you people have divorce papers that remain unsigned, that you thought this is the end, but you came to the altar and God began to turn something around in your life. These are the beautiful images that God have put into your life. Some of you have children that the doctor said will never be healthy and they're in the kid's wing right now running around healthy. Some of you are pregnant even though the doctor said it's an absolute impossibility. He's given you such beautiful images in your life. They're as stunning as an empty tomb. And there is promise. I will bring beauty from ashes. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can we just thank God for how good he's been to us?
Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope this message has encouraged you. If you want to learn more about our church, visit us online at awakening.global. We'll see you soon. Thank you.